Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Taisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of Talk House Film. On today's show, we have Viggo Mortensen in conversation with his longtime friend and fellow filmmaker, Alex Lambert, who's a regular contributor at TalkHouse. Now, Mortensen is one of the most brilliant actors of his generation, and you maybe know him as Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings movies, or from the three films he made with David Cronenberg, A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, for which he was Oscar-nominated, and A Dangerous Method or maybe as the man in the big screen adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, or for his Oscar-nominated turns in the crowd-pleasers Captain Fantastic and Green Book. What many people don't know about Mortensen is that his creative pursuits extend far beyond acting, as he's a gifted poet, photographer, painter, and musician. Mortensen also has a publishing company, Percival Press, which over the years has put out three excellent non-fiction books by the person talking with him today, Alex Lambert. The Silencing, The Mark of Cain, and Courtroom, which combine her writing, photography, and artwork. The book of The Mark of Cain stemmed from Alex's Independent Spirit Award-nominated documentary the same name, and in addition to her other non-fiction work, Lambert has written on the David Milk shows Deadwood and John from Cincinnati. The reason Lambert and Mortensen were talking for today's episode of the podcast is that Mortensen's debut film as writer-director, Falling, an intense, flashback-heavy family drama, is out February 5th. The film features a powerful central performance from Lance Henriksen, who plays Willis, a bigoted and brutally domineering patriarch who's losing his battle against Alzheimer's while his middle-aged children, played by Mortensen and Lauren Linney, bear the brunt of his confusion and anger. Mortensen not only wrote, directed, and acted in Falling, but in the grand tradition of independent cinema, wore even more hats, producing and writing the score for the film too. From their respective homes in Spain and Washington, D.C., Mortensen and Lambert had a fascinating, wide-ranging chat, taking in everything from, of course, falling in the pandemic to Vigo's musical collaborations with Buckethead, the various cinematic exploits of Vigo's son Henry, Lambert's current non-fiction project, the shared love that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and Mortensen have for a very surprising show, and much more. Also, Don't miss a great story about Lance Henriksen and David Cronenberg, who has a small but memorable role in falling as, of course, a proctologist. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Alex and Vigo. I did say that I was concerned because you and I, Vigo, are like the softest spoken, least inclined to initiate a conversation people I know. That's true. So so I wasn't sure who was going to do the talking. I'm happy for you two if you'd like to. (laughs) No, no, I'd much rather listen to you, but this is how I figured it would start. Okay. (laughs) No, I mean, I watched your movie, so obviously I would like to talk about your film. Well, thank you. But I also haven't seen you in in a while. And since since we last talked, there's been an insurrection, an impeachment, an inauguration. Yeah. A a pandemic. How how is the pandemic? A couple of... Which one, the COVID pandemic or the bad communication pandemic? Let's start with COVID. <laughs> um, I feel fortunate. I haven't got it. Um, I only know a few people that have 
had it that are, you know, people I know well. Um, I feel lucky to have a roof over my head, food in the cupboard, and, you know, my health. Uh, it's been a long year. It's been a strange year, like it has for everybody. <clears throat> yeah. But, but it's had a leveling effect. I try to find something positive as much as I can in any situation. And I think the pandemic has made it abundantly clear that uh, something that was already obvious, but most people don't go around thinking about it, is that life could be snuffed out any second for anyone, that life is fragile and you should make the most of it while you're here, as long as you get to be here. I think that's positive. I think that people are somewhat more conscious of older people, mm -hmm. especially very old people. Even young people are more conscious of them and naturally... They don't normally walk down the street, see an old person, and really dwell on having seen them, if they even see them. People that are in wheelchairs are sort of slowly making their way down the street. You're just trying to get past them, and you're thinking about the rest of your day or whatever. You're listening to on your headphones or, you know, <clears throat> your, your own stuff. You're not usually conscious. And I think now people are more apt to at least take a few seconds and think, oh, I wonder who's taking care of them, you know, that kind of stuff. That's positive. I was thinking about these things in, re in regards to your film because it does seem like there's a meditation on end of life and how you show up for people who maybe are challenging or difficult in that time. I think that must have been one of the hardest things, just families not being able to be with people at the end during this past year. I mean, it often happens that someone passes away and you wish you'd been there and you couldn't. But in this case, there are a lot of people that can be there but are just not allowed to because of the pandemic. And I think that's really cruel. I think so too. But I, I was thinking, wondering though, because in writing your, a film and directing for the first time, your approach to something that is very personal, or I guess I want to ask how personal it is. <clears throat> well, it's a fictional story about a fictional family, but I did start writing it because I just wanted to remember things my mother had said or stories about her when she passed away. When someone that you care about <clears throat> dies, everything's very present, very vivid. Images, fragments of conversation, stories. They've heard different versions of the same story from other people about her. New stories you might hear at a funeral or a memorial service from people that you'd never met, old friends, childhood friends. And so I wanted to write it all down before it sort of slipped away <clears throat> or got diluted with the passing of time and uh, by other thoughts and memories. So I wrote it down and then as I looked at all these notes, I thought, oh, that's a good sh short story. That could be a novella or a short story. So I started writing it using thoughts, memories that I had, more, more feelings than anything. And I think memories are more feeling than they are fact. But I quickly veered off into the imaginary realm. I, I guess I felt instinctively freer just making up a family, using some fragments from, from my subjective memories about my parents and their dynamic and the dementia aspect, which I've experienced with many members of our family. And I felt freer because I didn't have to call my brothers and say, did this happen? When did that happen? And who mm -hmm. said what? You know, it's just like, I'm just making up a story. And so 
even though it became a story largely about the relationship between a father and a son, at the heart of it still is, is Gwen, right. the mother, wife figure. I mean, they're usually arguing about her, I think. The bone of contention is the different ways that they remember her, what they feel about her, or what they say they feel about her. And that character, even though it's a fiction, does resemble my mother in a lot of ways. The way that character is played by Hannah Gross, there's a resemblance, you know, much more so than between my father and Willis. You know, when I say that there's a bad communication pandemic, that's what I think is happening now. When I started writing it, there was polarization in the United States and conflict and racism, homophobia, misogyny, all kinds of prejudices, which have now been given free reign <clears throat> under the Trump administration, obviously. But it was growing during the eight years of Obama. But the closer we get to the release <clears throat> on February 5th, the more timely the movie has come to scene because it, does, of, it has, yeah. You know, communication. I wanted to explore the idea of communication, the limits of it. Are there people that you shouldn't communicate with or don't deserve to be communicated with? And I personally don't think so, but I'm not saying that in the movie. I don't mm. like stories that, that, that give you answers or tell you what to think or feel. I, I like stories that just present questions, you know? Right. And, and when I say pandemic, I think it's true. I think that like a virus, like a physical virus, they're always around. They're always waiting to explode as COVID has. Right. Tribalism and everything that goes with it, nationalism, intolerance of any kind, is always waiting to explode as well as it has in the United States and other countries in recent years. <clears throat> but with the assault of the capital on January 6th, it was like, that was unbelievable. It was incredible. It was like yeah. the kind of thing, just like the whole Trump presidency. If, if 10 years ago you'd made a movie about that and had a scene where all these crazy people, including people wearing Camp Auschwitz shirts and just Nazis, basically, were breaking glass and smashing and killing cops and walking with handcuffs and armed and planting pipe bombs and wanting to kidnap and kill the Speaker of the House and the Vice yeah. President, you'd say, well, God, that's just one of those B-movies. It's a bad B-movie. It's not really credible. But, you know, here we are. No, and I mean... so it is a of, pandemic. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and speaking of death, I think about people who I know who died maybe five years ago. And if I suddenly had to explain to them what has happened since they left, Oh, my God. Yeah. They would just be like, okay, what are you talking about? I mean, I miss both my parents a lot, but in a way I'm glad they didn't have to see this. Yeah. Yeah. With the character you wrote, um, did you write that with Lance Henderson in mind? No, I didn't write any of the characters with anybody in mind, but when I finished writing it, yes, I thought about Certain actors or A-lists, really world-famous actors, that, well, if I could get one of those old guys to do it, mm, it would make it easier probably to raise the money. But I always thought Lance would be by far the best choice. I, I mean, mean I it's, it's a great he, part for him. He's just... He's so good in it. I just felt that he not only had the ability, the presence, the voice, the face, but the skill. There's something raw and pure and uncompromising about everything he does. He's done 280-odd movies, 
and he's never had a role as big or you know as challenging in a way as as Willis. Even so, everything I've, I've seen him do and had seen before approaching him for this role, he's always believable. I'm always drawn to him. There's something credible about his performances, which tells me he's committed, he prepares, he goes all in, and he he also is gifted. He has a presence that he's able to play with, to parlay, to use to his advantage playing characters. And he's, he's really fearless. Yeah. And I thought, that's what I want. I want it to feel really disturbingly real, this character. He was great. I mean, it was frustrating to have to wait so long. You mean waiting for him to be available? No, waiting for finance. Waiting for, And yeah. most of the time it doesn't happen. I mean, the first time I tried to, to get a movie made that I wanted to direct from a script I'd written was 25 years ago. Yeah. And with several scripts since then, I've tried many times and never got enough money together to shoot it. Not even close. And I understand that because the stories that I've written are not, you know, they don't resolve easily. They're not about giving you answers or telling you what to think. They're sort of, I guess, odd. And more than anything, I understand the reticence to give me money to make a movie because I've never made one. So just because I might be a familiar face to some investors as an actor, it doesn't mean I've shown any proof at all that I can direct, you know? So it was, it was frustrating to wait. It was frustrating to wait on with Falling, which took four years to get together. But in that time, we used it well. And one of the best things was that Lance stayed with it and we just kept working and talking about it and getting to know each other as people and and as actors and working on the script. And, and Well, there's two other people I was very excited to see in the film. I know you know who they are. Mm-hmm. I love seeing David Cronenberg. That was a very fun scene to see. Yeah, he was great. That was fun. I have a funny story about that that relates to Lance. First of all, that scene, and David's perfect in it, and I thought that his wryness, his dryness, with Lance's defensiveness as this character would be, would be a really nice combination. And I said to David, I said, it's not a gimmick. It's not like a, even a favor. I just, I think you'd be great. We just did the work efficiently. It was really good. Lance was really great. And then David went home and I said to Lance, well, how, how, how'd you like that? He goes, oh, that boy, you picked a hell of a doctor. He really gave me a run for my money. I said, but it was okay? You felt good? He goes, yeah, yeah, very strict. It's just right. And that was that. About a couple months ago, this is like a year later, Lance has Skype now and Zoom <laughs> and these things, which he didn't have any of that. And it was actually Henry, my son, who <clears throat> went out from, from L.A. and we got a computer for him and took it out, got him a new computer, and Henry installed Skype and all this out where Lance lives out in the middle of the desert and showed him how to use it. Because I said to Lance last, you know, August, September, I said, we're going to be doing lots of interviews, different countries, and and we're going to have to do most of them this way because we can't go to places and do in-person interviews uh, because of the pandemic. Okay, I have no idea what that is. I said, well, don't worry, we'll help you. And so we installed it. Now it's his favorite toy. <laughs> And he Skypes me at any, if I haven't closed the lid on the computer, it can go off at any time. And I'm nine hours ahead of him, but he doesn't think of that. It's just, it could be at any time that this thing rings. And (laughs) 
a little while back, I hear the ding dong, ding dong. And so I answer and it's Lance and he says, hey, how you doing? I go, I'm, I'm all right, you're awake. I go, yep, it's actually daytime this time. And he says, uh, hey, I just, you know what YouTube is? I go, yes, I do. And, and he said, you, there's everything's on there. I go, well, not everything, but yeah, a lot, maybe almost everything. And he said, yeah, I've been watching interviews and history stuff and really crazy stuff and everything. And I saw the other day, I saw you and Dr. Klausner <laughs> having a conversation. You're both sitting in these chairs on a stage and you're talking about this movie. And it turns out it's a David Cronenberg movie. I'm like, what the hell is he doing with Dr. Klausner? And then I'm like, oh, that's Cronenberg. I said, are you telling me you didn't know that was David Cronenberg that you worked with? He had no idea. And he, he said, no, I didn't know. But Lance is very honest. He said, no, I had no idea. I said, why should I know what he looks like? I said, but you know his movies. He goes, yes, I love his movies. So there he is. <laughs> oh, my God. He, yeah. but David, oh, man, he's, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, that's a high compliment then. Mm. And then Henry, of course, played the, and then Henry was, the yeah, New York State Trooper, and he was great. It was a I very, thought he very, was great. I was so excited. He's perfect. And it's nice. I mean, he's been in a number of things with you, but mm -hmm. there's something nice that it's a father-son story. Yeah. No, but he had a great presence. He did an incredible job. Oh, my I can't God. He's great. Anybody no. doing it better. Yeah. That was one of those things that just happened in this long preparation of this movie. There was a point where I realized, other than working with Lance, I'd never heard the whole script out loud, right? And so I was visiting Henry and I said, hey, do you mind reading through the script and we'll just split all the parts up and we'll read the script together? Mm -hmm. And when we got to that scene, I said, I'll read Willis, you read the cop. And then he read it and it was like really good. But I wasn't thinking he'd be the cop because at that point, Henry had hair down to his waist and a huge beard. It never entered my mind. We were just reading and I was, you know, figured, you know, I had to cast either Canadians or European actors anyway because of the co-production deal. We had Lance and Laura, and those were the only Americans we were allowed. And I was working as a Danish citizen. So I wasn't thinking, he was just reading through. I said, oh, that was really good. And you got the accent too. He goes, yeah, well, I know that accent. That's, you know, Northern New York. That's where Granny Bay's <laughs> from. And, you know, that's where I went to high school and all that. So he knows that accent. I said, let's read that again. Just, I just want to hear it again. And, and I read it and there was a dryness and there was something very right about it. I said, God, that's really good. I mean, and you're even the right age, but of course you don't look like a cop. And anyway, whatever. And then he said, well, what should the guy, when does it happen? I said, it's 1977. At most he could have some sort of sideburns like they did. He goes, I'll do that. I'll cut off my, I said, but then you can't, oh, you have a Danish passport. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could. Uh, well, you're coming to visit me anyway. What the hell? And you want to do it? And then I, then I thought, oh, no, I put him under a really, you know, pressure situation, you know, to come in and have to do that. And, but he, and he did cut all his hair off. He, he cut all his hair off and he's that mustache and sideburns. He looked like a cop, like the state troopers I remember in high school from, from that. He area. totally he did. Perfect. He was perfect. He sounded perfect. It was, it was great. Um, Henry's directing. How's yeah. this film come together? Well, he's fine. He's got it done now, and he's just looking for festivals and a place to get people to see it. It's a really good documentary called I think Ugly it's great. Pop. Yeah, say yeah, something about it, because I think it's really great. 
Yeah, and it's the band, well, as you know, the last song in Falling is by Skating Polly. It's called A Little Late, and it feels like it was written for the movie. It's it does. Really and it's, yeah. I mean, I heard that when I was writing the, the movie, I thought, oh, you know, that would be great as an end credit song. And I asked them, and they gave me permission a long time ago. And, and he made a documentary about that band as two sisters originally out of Oklahoma, Kelly Mayo and Peyton Big Horse, a band called Skating Polly. He's followed them for a few years to concerts and rehearsals, recordings at home, their family, and it's a really beautiful movie. It's called Ugly Pop because that's how they define their music. They're a punk rock band, but they have a lyricism and Ugly Pop is a perfect name. It's messy, yeah, but it is catchy music too at the same time. And yeah, it's a beautiful movie. I, I recommend that to anyone that, that likes music, especially punk rock music. The other music in your film is you, right? Yeah, it's um, Buckethead, the guitar player. I've recorded a lot of things with him over the years. I think the first thing we ever recorded was back in 1996 or 1997. We've recorded a lot of music together. I gave a couple songs to Lisandro Alonso for an unusual movie that I did, an Argentine movie called Jauja. That came out I love I that think, film. about That's a beautiful six film. years ago. Isn't it? It's beautifully photographed. It's really nice. And he doesn't usually use music, but at the time he said, I would like to put music in these two spots <laughs> in the story. And I said, really? So what kind of music? Well, it should have some guitar maybe, and it should be lyrical. I can't be too long. I said, instrumental. He goes, yeah. And I said, well... And I was a, one of the producers in that movie. I said, well, I have to tell you, we have no more money left, but... I can get you a couple of songs for free. <laughs> I <laughs> have to tell real. you. <laughs> That's the producer hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were shooting short ends. And I mean, it was ridiculous. I was riding a horse throughout that movie a lot across the, 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 the Pampa prairies in Argentina. And he likes to shoot, you know, you enter frame and leave frame. But if you're in a vast prairie landscape, that could be minutes, right? depending on how fast you're going. We got to a point in the movie where he would say, well, I need this shot. You cross this dry river, this draw, and you go up the other side and over the hill and out of sight. I said, okay. He says, and what we've got, we've got three pieces of film left. We've got a 40, 45 second piece. We've got a 37 seconds. And we have one that's almost a minute, I think. I said, well, it depends. What do you want, walking, trotting, or galloping? I said, <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? I said, well... I'll go fast, and then you can save some of the longer pieces. And he says, but you have to be out of the shot before, you know, or it doesn't work. For him, it doesn't work because you have to exit frame. <laughs> That's the state we were in at the <laughs> point where he said, how about the music? And I said, well, how about some free music? <laughs> so Buckethead and I made a couple of things, and he liked it. And it does work in the movie. So one of the things I was doing in the years that I was waiting to shoot Falling, obviously, you know, you're on your own as an originating producer and writer and, that's all good, but there's no money and uh, no partner. So I, I was on my own, imagining as much as I could, you know, prepare whatever you can, work on the script, and what would the music be like? And I thought it would be austere, it would be piano-based, it would be very simple. And I thought, well, maybe it would be like this, maybe it would be like that. So I just started composing. And by the time we got to shoot, I'd already written some stuff. I wrote some more during the shoot and the rest during the editing. And again, we had no money left by the time we finished editing. So it wasn't like we would be able to go in with some orchestra for two weeks. 
So Buckethead and I just played this stuff, you know. In two days we did it. It was done. And so it was just out of necessity. And it was also handy because I didn't have to pay the composer um, any more than I had to pay the actor or the writer <laughs> or the director. It was, it was really handy. Uh, hopefully yeah, the next none one, of those guys I, made a salary, no, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> but that meant that we had enough days just to shoot what we needed and, and, and to edit it. So hopefully the next one I'll get paid something. <laughs> How are you enjoying all those different hats? It was all right. I wasn't planning to act in it. I was worried I wouldn't be able to pay attention to the crew in the right way. But since we planned things really well before we started shooting, I, I was we had a plan of action each day, so it wasn't so bad. And actually acting with Lance was a great experience. It was wonderful to watch him build this character from the ground up. Yeah. Really, really fun. That's awesome. What are you working on now? Well, during the lockdown, like you probably did, I read a lot of things. I watched <laughs> and rewatched movies. Um, I made contact with people I hadn't talked with for a long time. And then I wrote um, two more screenplays, two new ones. Okay, you're putting us all to shame. <laughs> no, but it's been a year. It's a long time. One of those I hope to hope to be the next movie. I which one? Would, which one is it? There's two. One's a Western, which is kind of a love story and a revenge story at the same time. And the other one is a story that takes place during World War II. It's all seen from the point of view of a 10-year-old girl. I really like that one. That's the second I wrote, one I wrote. But there's something about the first one. I think that might be easier to get made. I'm not sure, though. We'll see. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with all of the shooting and stuff. I know. I mean, I was writing, even thinking, well, when the hell am I going to be able to do this? Now I've made a movie, I can prove that I can make one, so it shouldn't take 25 years to make the next one. I know, um, I feel. But, uh, but how and when and where, you know, will it be possible? What else, what have you been doing? You've been writing? A lot of writing, a lot of reading. That's good. Editing, things that you can do inside. Yeah. What have you been reading lately? Well, I'm making this film on crime in Ireland. So mm. I'm reading all these amazing Irish crime books. Wow. Are they contemporary? Yeah. I mean, I'm reading a bunch of different things that span different time frames. But yeah, contemporary mm. Irish crime. Well, I loved your last book that you did, uh, that Percival Press put out, Courtroom. That was really cool. I love working with you on these things that was that came out right at the beginning of the it really did I yeah. was thinking was like about I, that I got that in just before you couldn't kind of yeah the early days yeah. and then it was like locked down I think I flew yeah. back to New York and the very next day New York was locked down and that was it yeah yeah but I was really pleased I'm really so happy about that because I think that also is not unrelated to the times we're living through. I agree. The uh, racism within the system, among other things. Yeah. The judicial system. Yeah. Yeah, definitely true. What have you been writing about? The, the Irish thing? Yeah, also yeah. mostly about Irish crime, yeah. Yeah. Are, are you yeah. collecting, like, source material like you did for the courtroom book? Yeah, I'm interviewing a lot of people, which is something you can do from, like, what we're doing right here. So. 
But ideally, you would like to go to Irish prisons and talk to prisoners or what? I mean, I'm writing to inmates. I think what Mm -hmm. we're talking about is doing two different versions of developing the project because I don't know how much is going to have to be online or how much could be performed live. Have you watched this uh, series of interviews that Martin Scorsese did with Fran Lebowitz? Yes, because I absolutely love Fran Lebowitz and it's been like a security blanket to hear her talk about New York City. She's hilarious. She said one thing about us thinking, you know, you think about all these mindless, uninformed people are baiting the Democrats, you know, socialism, socialism, you want socialism, you know, and they don't, if you ask the people accusing Democrats of that and Biden and Kamala Harris and everyone else to define socialism, they probably couldn't. But she said something interesting about that. She said, in the Soviet Union, capitalism triumphed over communism. In this country, capitalism triumphed over democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Well, socialism, yeah. When everybody shares in the wealth, communism is when everybody shares in the poverty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you made that great movie, Mark of Cain. That was great. That's great. I've given that to a lot of people, and they really are amazed by it. That was a really good documentary you made. Thank you. Have you been watching the What's Happening with Navalny? That's horrifying. I mean, it's, it's horrifying. so... It's like sort of like Trump, like just now it's just openly. Yeah. So what? What are you going to do about it? Yeah. You would think that they would be careful. And maybe he thought that or maybe he didn't. I don't know. Going back there. I don't know. I mean, I've been kind of glued to that story. Well, they don't seem to be concerned about appearances whatsoever. Nope. No. What do you think the chances are that they'll kill him in prison? I think they're pretty high. Yeah. That he'll commit suicide, quote-unquote. In quotes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's having an effect on the population. It doesn't seem... I think that maybe they underestimated the people's desire for some kind of transparency. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing it all across Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might have been a big mistake on their part. But maybe they were weighing it. It's like, well, if we don't put him in jail... There is this movement happening, and that's going to be a problem. And if we do, they'll protest, but then maybe they'll realize that we are too powerful to oppose. I bet you it was one of those where they're like, well, you're screwed if you do, and you're screwed if you don't, so let's just put him in jail. Did you see him flying in? He was watching Ren and Stimpy on his computer. (laughs) No, that's great. I thought that was some calm under pressure to just be watching some Ren and Stimpy. Yeah, when that show was canceled, I really was uh, sad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I remember that. Yeah, I love that show. I mean, I've watched the reruns and all that, but I've showed that to people. That, that's not something that travels necessarily very well <laughs> to other countries, i found. Really? Yeah, it's like I'm laughing my ass off, and people are like, they just get bored and just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for showing me that. And if they're really nice people, they'll watch maybe two or three of them, but that's it. And I'm like, sure, you don't want to watch. There's a great one with the, about the fart, and he's you know, stinky. You remember that one? It was such a great one. That he's chasing. It's like a Russian novel, speaking of Russia. Um, it is like a Russian like, novel. 
right through the snow and he's looking for Stinky. He misses his fart that got away from him. That's his pal, this little green puff. Little. The, the Europeans aren't, aren't enjoying your... That's not funny for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't work. That one in particular, it doesn't work at all. And I'm saying this is, you got to see this one. This is the greatest one. And then it's like, okay, I'm done. I gotta go. I gotta go pick up the kids or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, failed Ren and Stimpy episode. Or even I've got to go do this and that. And you know they're lying. They could have <laughs> stayed. And I said we could watch something else. And like no, because then they're thinking, what would something else be if this? He thinks this is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> What's he gonna drag me into next? <laughs> yeah. yeah, great, great show. <laughs> oh. So nice to hear your voice. Likewise, likewise, likewise. New York, when did you move from New York to D.C.? The end of July. Mm. I'm down by my sister now. Mm. I'm glad I did it because that's a lot of isolation. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like, I think, another year at least of at least being careful about distancing. I think at least till probably July, August, right? Yeah. Every time that I hear someone like on TV saying, like Fauci is saying, that's if everything goes according to plan. And I'm like, okay, forget about it. What has gone according to plan? Nothing. Well, there's a slightly better chance now that you have people who are are qualified for their jobs. But you still have this shithole that we're in. Yeah. That you got to dig out of. And a mentality among some people still. Mask wearing is for crybabies right. and paranoid do-gooders or something for liberals. And <laughs> Those that, two categories. And that vaccines are uh, are questionable. I mean, there's even some <laughs> doctors that it's come out and say that, which I find incredible. Well, I don't know. I know. I, I, I don't know. Get vaccinated, it's like, oh, God. And then also, you can't do it from state to state or country to country. It's like everybody yeah. needs to kind of... Yeah, one of Biden's first efforts is to go to rejoin the WHO, World Health Organization. That's, that's a good thing. And, and he did have a memorial. That's what I think I was saying earlier. I feel like there's been all of this grieving and loss with no opportunity to acknowledge it or process it or talk about it. And I think there's an element of that. Just to loop back to the beginning in your film, that there is that meditation on loss and grief also. Yeah, it's important. It's important. And also remembering your better possibilities in terms of behavior and and comradeship, regardless of your political affiliations. It's such a no-brainer for a president to do something like that. And yet it seemed utterly remarkable when, when he and Kamala Harris stood there by in front of Lincoln Memorial <laughs> the reflecting pool doing that. It's like, no shit. That should have happened right. a year ago. But that's the times we're living in. But I think that it's also memory can serve in a way, no matter how, no matter how twisted it is or how subjective it is, a memory, broken bonds of fellowship or within a family or within a society, sometimes when it's really broken, 
just by remembering, even if it's subjectively, a time when it wasn't entirely broken. And how did we do that? How did that work that we actually could have conversations with people that we didn't agree with? That memory can help you reconstitute bonds of fellowship, I think. And that's in part what happens in falling. You know, obviously, you're traveling through this story, remembering things sometimes from the son's point of view, sometimes from the father's point of view. Sometimes they're combined or one leads into the other. And there are some memories that are difficult, but some have to do with moments of empathy, with some connection, some point of contact. And you can learn from history, I guess, and your own personal history sometimes. And it's as much to do with feeling as thinking, as you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, memory mm-hmm. is a feeling often. Yeah, it's much more a collection of feelings than, than of facts. We edit without even thinking about it all the time. And I think the story I tell you about something that happened, or let's say something that we both were party to, an event or a moment, and you say, you remember that time when this and that happened? And next time we talk about it, I would describe it in a different way. And no mm-hmm. matter what I say, it's very possible that you might say, no, that wasn't summer, that was winter or <laughs> night. It wasn't daytime. Or the extreme is you're talking about this thing that you believe happened to you. And, and they say, well, you weren't even there. I told you about that. I wasn't. Yes, I was. Right. I and mean, that happens all the time. And I think we do this thing as a mechanism that we have subconsciously to just uh, put in a certain order that's, safe and comfortable, we control the past, try to, so that we can feel comfortable in the present because the present is in flux and it's confusing and obviously the future hasn't happened, so it's neither here nor there. It just hasn't happened. The past, we think, well, I can count on that. I mean, I have photos, I have videos, I have diary entries, I have history books I can look at. (laughs) But those books, those diary entries, those photographs, those videos were all made by people with a point of view. There's no way that we remember exactly what happened ever, which can be drive you crazy if you think, so nothing's real, nothing in the past, nothing now, I don't know anything. No, you don't really know anything, but you have feelings about the past. And as much as we're trying to control the past, it obviously controls us completely. It affects how we deal with people how we see what we think happened to us, that has formed us. Our editing job in the past tells us how to react in the present, you know. And I I think it's worth exploring. I like exploring that aspect in falling as well. There's no answers, but it doesn't mean it's not worth exploring it because something is there. Something informs the way you behave now. Yeah, and no, there's never answers. It's always the questions. It's always in the right questions. Yeah. No, this is great. This is great to hear you talk. It's really nice to hear you talk. I'm glad you're writing. And good luck with the Irish. How far along are you with that? I'm still interviewing people. So I think I'll start editing in maybe a few weeks, month. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Do you have a title for it yet? <laughs> Not yet. Crime colon IRL. Though I did the one in America, which was crime colon USA, even though it's funny because Americans think IRL is in real life. But it's Ireland. Mm. Mm. Sounds good. I look forward to it. And I look forward to being able to have a conversation in person someday. I know. I know. Hopefully within the year. Mm. 
Did you take the train when you went from New York to Washington? My sister actually drove up and got me. Uh, I did take the train to Baltimore. (laughs) That was my one train experience. And it seemed Mm -hmm. safe enough. I think the problem Mm -hmm. is it seems fine as long as no crazy person gets on your car. But the minute you're on there... In the United States, I mean, in Europe, people are a little more... I mean, there hasn't been so many people saying masks or bullshit and... Right. Cowardly and COVID doesn't exist. It's a hoax and all that. That's not really in any way prevalent in Europe, fortunately. Um, I did do one trip in the fall where I went by car with masks and gels and, you know, all that. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to different cities in Europe uh, almost a month. I did a road trip where I did Q&As in movie theaters. Oh, any that's place good. I could with falling and presenting it. And that's the only, yeah, that's the best way to learn about your movie. Like, how do people react and what... What kind of questions do they ask? How do they relate to it? And that was a great experience. People in the, these Q&As would say, oh, my family this or that, or in my society this. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's good. It's like the story's very regional, specific to one part of the United States, and yet different cultures related. I mean, everybody has families. Everybody I was going to say, everybody's got a parent and, or a child yeah, or yeah. a sibling. or right. You know. Or a communication problem with somebody, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a great experience. And then I felt like the angel of death because every time I'd leave a country, they'd lock it down again. <laughs> <laughs> I did all these interviews and everything. And then they said, well, we're going to have to hold these for, I don't know, months until we can open up again. But I did log all those things. I went around, did interviews, did TV interviews, radio, did Q and A's in all these countries, and it was a, it was cool. And then I, as I left each country, they would close the border. Basically, <laughs> I have and to I say, <laughs> I, I think the reason everybody's responding from Ireland is because they just locked down again. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Nothing to do. They're just like, sure, let's talk. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Did you see though that when the vaccine came out, the Zoom stocks plummeted? Really. Uh, Isn't that funny? I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Capitalism. (laughs) But I think we're on here for a while, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a racket. It is. Okay, Vigor, I'll talk to you. Good luck on the book, Alex. We'll We'll be in touch. Yep. All right. Take care. Thank you so much to Vigo Mortensen and Alex Lambert for being on the TalkHouse podcast. And thanks to you for listening. Falling is in theaters, on digital and on demand, through Quiver Distribution and Percival Pictures on February 5th. This episode was produced by Kevin O'Connell and the TalkHouse podcast theme music, as ever, was composed and performed by The Range. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkhouse.com film where you can find all kinds of good stuff, including some excellent pieces by Alex Lambert. Subscribe to the TalkCast podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and dig into our previous episodes, like Alex in conversation with another longtime friend, Fred Armisen. And of course, go hit us up on all our socials, at TalkCast, across the board. I'm Nick Dawson, and until next time, take it easy and stay safe. That's a nice haircut, Vigo. You just get a haircut? Yeah. <laughs> Big one. Yeah. It's a pandemic cut, I guess. <laughs>